Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Um, today's episode, we're going to be talking about the question, can regular people run society? And a quick go around of who's here. I'm Posey. I'm Taylor. I'm Teddy. Great. And uh, Taylor, who hasn't been on the podcast before, it's our first time. So welcome, Taylor. She's going to start us off. Okay. Thank you, Posey. So yeah, just to kind of set the stage here before we really go into the conversation, can regular people run society? We want to make it clear that our socialism and our idea of running society is fundamentally democratic because a lot of people when talking about like Canada, um, the States, other capitalist liberal democracies where there's a lot of talk of freedom and, you know, just our control over the world, that is kind of seen as the full extent of what democracy can be. But when you think about it, we don't really have control over a lot of aspects of our lives, including, you know, where we work, the economy, uh, public goods, shared resources, like our relationship with nature, um, everything to do with work, really. Our lives depend on that work and we need it to survive and we don't really have any say in that. So when we say our socialism is fundamentally democratic, we think that people should be able to control those relationships. And that kind of leads us into the question, well, can they, are people capable of doing that? Um, and before we get into that deeper as well, like who are actual regular people? Like, what do we mean when we say that? And really the way we look at it is that there's a working class and a ruling class the working class are the people who own their labor, you know, they have the ability to work with their hands, their bodies, their minds, um, but you don't have any property, you don't have any say over the work that you do. So what you have to do is you have to go to the ruling class or the capitalist class and you rely on them to get an income. You work for them. And 
through that relationship, they are exploiting the work that you do because inherently you're not getting the full value of the labor that you put in. So regular people are those people who are just working to survive and the ruling class are the capitalists who profit and exploit off that relationship. Another thing that's worth mentioning is kind of the way class is generally defined in society where, you know, you have maybe lower class, lower middle class, middle class. That's not really a thing in this context, even though there, it can feel like there's a pretty big distance between myself and somebody who drives a BMW maybe. But if they're still a worker, they're still working class. So when we say regular people running society, we want them to be able to change these relationships and have control over these relationships, our relationship to our work, to each other, and to the planet, and to enable human flourishing in an ecological way in an extremely democratic society where decisions are made together. Yeah. yeah. I just want to add one small thing to that definition. And it is a bit of a small thing, but um, I think it's worth saying that I would also consider in that definition of working class, um, people who work for a wage and also those who are dependent on people who work for a wage. So if mm. you um, are a child or you can't work for some reason and you have a family member whose wage um, you need to live off of, or you live off of, you know, disability um, funds from the state. Those are all people who count uh, in the working class category. Um, yeah, so people who don't, or unemployed, the unhoused, all those people count as regular people. Okay, so talking about if regular people can run society, there's often a stock set of uh, either myths or common arguments that sort of dismiss it out of hand, and we thought it'd be good to get into some of them. So one of the ones that comes up in all kinds of forms is the human nature question. Is human nature a barrier to regular people running society? Is there something intrinsic about how we are that automatically makes it not even possible to consistently run society in a democratic way where you don't have elites or people in this sort of privileged position or powerful position making the decisions. Some of the things that people that come up in lots of different forms are people are too ignorant or people are too selfish or people are uh, too hardwired to be oppressive. I think that people are just so varied in all different kinds of times, places, and ways of interacting. Like from an anthropological perspective, there are many different kinds of human societies. The human society we see now with the different uh, problems and challenges that we raise right now are not timeless. It's not the case that uh, people had the same logic or ideas of oppressive dynamics today as they did thousands of years ago. That is something that is very based on how our society is, based on how we actually coordinate and produce things. and. Of course, you know, when you talk about capitalism, um, it's not the case that sexism was born in capitalism. Patriarchy predates capitalism, and that goes back to uh, 
a gender division of labor that happened in earlier class-based societies. Um, so I'm not trying to make the claim that you know every oppression just came out of capitalism and before that everything was a utopia, but definitely capitalism makes those things so much worse and enhances and intensifies those problems. And what we're talking about, a society that regular people run is one that is not based on a class division, not based on one class having the overproportionate amount of control over how society as a whole produces things. Another thing too is that when you talk about human nature, it's very uneven how we look at what we count as an example of a human nature deficiency and what we consider uh, as something successful. I'll make that clear with this example. Right now, we're totally rocked by COVID-19. At the same time as that, you have this unprecedented amount of coordination and speed and resources to develop a vaccine that is quite genius what the nature of the vaccine is. An mRNA vaccine is very fantastic in what it does. It's never been done before in this way. So that's really an example of human success. Now, there's tons of problems with how this vaccine is being rolled out. You can think about the way that the, the, the patents are being held and there's this challenges about who uh, the waiver to the patents and how wealthy countries are, are withholding it from poorer countries. But there's something in the vaccine production that is still remarkable, remarkable. And that is a super coordinated thing. The problem is that even though it's an example, an exemplary scenario of humans coordinating in an amazing way to do something for human need, it's still mediated through a system of profit, a system of non-democratic control and a system of competition. So on the one hand, you have vaccines that usually take decades to, to be produced being done in less than two years. But on the other hand, you see that just having that technology and that amount of human coordination does not result in it just all of a sudden being made available for everybody uh, in, the, in a way that prioritizes people. Human nature is there in the highest moments of the success of what we've done with this vaccine and the systemic arrangement of society is the hugest barrier to tapping into the human potential to, to release the vaccine to everybody. So I think in this way, you can look at all lots of examples of people working in a coordinated way for people not being selfish, being selfless, for people learning empathetically about other people's viewpoints and changing their mind and not being stuck in a kind of rigid, like uh, closed-minded, uh, selfish kind of worldview. We see that all the time, but we don't use those examples that we see as checkpoints about, hey, human nature is good. And instead, when people use the argument of human nature being a failure, they only point to, in my opinion, very systemic problems and, and kind of explain them all as a human nature thing. So it's a very inconsistent thing. Um, and that's why I think in general, the human nature kind of argument falls apart. Yeah, human human nature. What a what a big question. Something I would add to that as well is just that like culture is part of human nature. Like humans, like something that makes humans humans are the, the development of cultures. And as you said, Teddy, there are so many different ways um, those cultures can develop. Uh, and the one we live in now does, you know, encourage us to think that 
certain behaviors that are beneficial to the maintenance of the class society we exist in now uh, perpetuate themselves, right? It's, it's good for the ruling class if we um, are competitive with each other and are selfish and, and don't work together. Um, and something I wanna talk about too is it's, it makes sense that people quote unquote regular people think that about human nature, think that um, humans are, you know, that the, the masses uh, can't run things because we're, we're raised in a society that um, functions on that logic. And the logic of the system we have uh, in Canada and in other capitalist liberal democracies was developed um, as a way to specifically limit um, the amount of control that the masses have on what happens. You know, they're founded in an idea that it's, you know, imperative that we limit the power of both the state and the monarch, and that we also limit the power of the masses and avoid mob rule, right? There's an idea that too much democracy is a bad thing um, that leads to, you know, a complete mess because regular people, as, as Teddy said, are, you know, uneducated. Once they, once they get into a fervor, anything can happen. We could have the Salem witch trials. You know, there's so many examples um, that are thrown around of, you know, what happens when you give the people too much power. Um, and yeah, and that comes back to the idea that you know, the, the revolutions that we had in Europe, you know, the age of enlightenment, all these things were actually, you know, there was an element of, of regular people involved in those struggles to create the democracy we have. But at the end of the day, it was a battle between limiting the power of monarchs or nobles, nobles between monarchs, um, you know, the new elite bourgeois capitalists uh, with monarchs and um, inherited power. Uh, so, you know, it's not really like our current democracy is not a lot of democracy um, as it is now. So I'd put that point forward as well. Yeah, thank you, Teddy and Posey. You made really great points. Um, one that I would just hit on again and emphasize is that the prevalence of capitalism it impacts every aspect of our lives, every single system that we operate within. So it makes sense that, you know, regular people wouldn't necessarily question that system, or even when we do recognize that it is making our lives more difficult or we feel frustrated with the amount of control we have over our lives. It's also just the way it is, because when you're brought up in a society, you know, from your parents telling you, from the media telling you, from your education, all of it is pointing to, you know, getting a nine to five and a white picket fence and you'll be fine. And if you aren't fine, it's um, an individual fault of your own, which you can kind of observe by looking to people who have failed in the system, you know, seeing people on the streets, that's not because the system is supposed to take care of them or supposed to cater to them. They have all the tools that they want if they were able to take advantage of that. And the fact that they didn't is their fault. And that again, plays into the idea of competition and also reminds you of where you could end up if you aren't subscribing to that system. So by buying into capitalism, it's not that people are stupid or don't understand what's going on in their lives, but 
we really truly don't have a lot of control over our lives under this system. And unless we're given an alternative experience or we experience through our daily lives some sort of power or some sort of movement of solidarity with others, you know, are we involved in a union? Were we involved in the climate strike of 2019? You know, that can be a really powerful moment. And it's another demonstration of what people can do when we come together. So it's really our experiences that shape ourselves and allow us to step outside of that, what you may call hegemony or that the ideology that we are instilled with from the moment we're born. So it's really not that people are stupid. And especially as socialists, it's important for us to recognize that because if you come from it at an angle where, you know, I am just so much smarter and I know this and I'm so frustrated that people don't see the things I see. It's really not that simple and we all have our own journeys. So we need to think about how can we create an environment where people do have opportunity to experience those things where we can work together and we can overcome things or, you know, fight for concessions, whatever it may be we can work together democratically to make change that can be extremely powerful. And it's just whether or not they've had that opportunity or that experience in their lives. Yeah, great point, Taylor, also about, you know, people being being stupid, because it's like, we all, we're all born stupid. You know, we don't call babies stupid, but, you know, humans have such a huge capacity for learning. Um, it doesn't mean like that I think all people are smart, but I think people have the capacity um, to to learn new things and to change. That's something that I think is human nature, is fundamentally human. Um, another myth that I want to push back against is the idea that, um, you know, why would we expect people to want to be involved in running the world, running society, when already we have such a massive population in Canada, same things as in the States and other places, of non-voting public, of people who are eligible to vote. Um, this is their one chance to be involved in, in the democratic process and they don't do it. Um, there's a lot of really smart um, responses to this question. I, I'm most convinced by the idea that people don't vote um, a lot of the time because they recognize that their vote quote unquote doesn't matter, um, that in the grand scheme of things, the way in Canada, especially, you know, we have a first past the post system. We have, you know, this, so we have the system where even if the majority of the people in your riding um, vote for not the liberal or not the conservative or whatever, there's a chance that that person will still win. Even if your guy does win, there's no real mechanism to hold them accountable to promises they made. Um, and I think people, again, aren't stupid and they know that, you know, if you, an adult and you've seen enough election cycles, you kind of get a sense of a trend um, that it feels as though your voice and your opinion doesn't really matter in that process. And I don't think those people are wrong, even though I do vote. So that's a point I would make. And then also I'd make that, you know, we, the way voting is set up is, you know, we don't believe in universal suffrage, right? We deny votes to people who've been criminalized. We deny votes to children. Um, we denied votes to women for a long time. We denied votes to indigenous people. Um, we deny votes to migrants, um, undocumented people. 
there are huge amounts of people who honestly, the way that government functions affects their lives more than a lot of other people. Um, we don't get, we don't give them or allow them to have that tiny slice um, or sliver of control. So there's a lot of things that could be done um, in our current democracy to make it more democratic. And one of the reasons those things don't happen is because they don't need to happen for things to run um, the way they are and to run to benefit the ruling class, right? I think we all remember, at least I remember keenly uh, that Justin Trudeau uh, promised electoral reform and in a very strong way and then didn't deliver on it because you know he said that people didn't seem to care enough about it after making the calculation that he would get votes by um, campaigning on that point. So pretty, pretty cynical position that Trudeau took on that one. Um, but I would say that that would be my response to people who say that is just, you know, the, the comparing this voting system we have now to a system in which people would have input on the things that actually do affect their daily lives. So in the workplace, in their neighborhoods, um, with their families, with their health, all these sorts of things, um, you know, people do complain on Facebook and complain on Twitter. Like people obviously care about political things that affect their lives. Um, and voting is not the only way to measure the amount that people care about those issues and want to work towards change. Those are such good points. People are not stupid. It's not confusing why people get jaded by a process that doesn't actually seem to like offer the change that it's put on a pedestal to offer. That leads to something else I want to jump into, which is a big question of like, is it even possible for regular people to run society? Um, we want that to happen. We think it's ethically the best thing. Is it possible? I will point to a couple of things that will hopefully help make the case that it's possible. First of all, I want to just put this question in its place, which is to say that because something has never happened before doesn't mean it can't happen in the future. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't really look at examples that we've already experienced or looking at history to see how possible it is. But even that is not going to give us the full explanation of or prediction of if something is possible or not, especially on questions of running society, which by their necessity involves so many different aspects. We're looking at something that's a complex system. Okay, so that being said, I do think there are some examples that we can think of that make us feel positively about the idea that it's possible. Before delving deep in history, I just wanna first look at something more recent, which is the West Virginia teacher strike. Now, the West Virginia teacher strike, um, it was the case that all the schools, uh, public schools in West Virginia were shut down, teachers were on strike and they fought for that a few years ago. And that was not an example of running society, for sure. It's just school. There's lots of aspects of society that go beyond that. But what you did see in those examples was regular people taking over some functions that were previously not their quote, job to do. They were fulfilling some functions of society that they stepped up to the plate to do um, as a consequence of taking the job, job action of shutting down the schools. One thing they did in specific here was 
maintaining food and breakfast programs for people in their community. Um, those, you know, kids need to eat, families rely on that. Um, it was a function that the school was serving, but when the teachers shut down the schools, that function would have also stopped and evaporated and left people in a position where they didn't have that service that they were using. But the teachers didn't let that happen. They coordinated themselves and made sure that kids were still getting fed, even though they weren't in the school and even though they shut down the school. So again, that's not the full of running society, but it is an example of taking some of the functions that society that we that we accomplish in our current dynamic and moving it into a way that we do it in a self-control, like we regular people are controlling it. Um, there's a couple of other examples that are like that, but I'll just jump into the deep ones of history that are kind of bigger. And Solidarity Winnipeg actually, a long time ago in the at the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, um, we had a discussion talking about the Russian Revolution and you can find that on our YouTube channel and I hope that we'll put it on our SoundCloud channel eventually. Um, but if you listen to that, I won't get into all the details, but the Russian Revolution in the early times of it, um, the first few years, was another really high point of, of regular people running society. You had whole different democratic structures of how decisions were made, councils. Uh, the councils, which in Russian is called Soviets, um, these councils were democratic. You had soldiers' councils, you had um, trades' councils, you had community councils. You had these different councils where the council people would come up with uh, decisions about how they want to do things. And then delegates from those councils would go to a larger um, council, an assembly that involved people from other councils. And, and that's how decisions would be made. And that would be how decisions would be made uh, on aspects of society that are at this time, in this place of the world and everywhere in the world right now, totally not in regular people's control, whether that is military decisions, whether that is questions about what we do with industry, all these kinds of things were decided at this democratic council level and brought forward uh, into these larger assemblies. Um, that is a really excellent example to show that uh, over hundred years ago, there were people who not just two or three or 10 or 15 people or a small number of people, but um, entire cities, entire like hundreds and thousands of people engaging in these ways of trying to make decisions that put democracy and put control into regular people's hands and not uh, relying on whether you are looking at monarchies or uh, CEOs or landlords or bosses. So thinking of those two more recent and ancient versions uh, of regular people uh, making decisions that show that running society is possible. It's possible to take the best from that and go even further in the, in the future. Yeah, great point, Teddy. And I would add to your, I really like the, the starting question of, you know, what's expanding our, our um, you know, belief in what's possible. Um, you know, there's so much faith that we have in this culture in scientific innovation, you know, that we like, it's already like an accepted fact that we're gonna reach the singularity or that we're gonna make it to Mars and all these things. Yeah, we made it to the moon and making it to Mars is qu like quite a lot more, but just that one little step makes people think, yeah, of course we can make it to Mars, even though it's like a much 
bigger uh, and in a lot of ways a completely different project than making it to the moon. But a lot of people just have faith in scientific quote unquote progress. Um, not just, I'm not gonna hate on, we won't get into why I think going to Mars is the, one of the world's worst ideas. Um, but I wish that people kind of, you know, entertained that same sort of optimism or even just imagination and when it comes to what's possible in terms of social organization, because it's like, yeah, we've made it to the moon. You know, we've seen examples um, where regular people have run society, even in, in short, spurts or even you know capitalism and the types of democracy we have now in the huge scope of human history and human experience is just a tiny tiny part you know there's so many examples of indigenous peoples of the historical peoples of present peoples who have different ways of organizing um you know we can look at in canada like different uh like the haudenosaunee confederacy which i think is more of a representative uh, democracy than direct democracy, but it's a mix. Um, but there are like different examples of the ways humans can organize and, you know, we can expand that horizon. And another thing I would say when you talked about the West Virginia teacher strike, Teddy, is I think it has to be said because we're in Winnipeg that, um, you know, similar things also happened in the Winnipeg general strike, not to, not to, uh, not to put the Winnipeg general strike on a pedestal, like obviously it had issues but for a short period of time you know the strike committee ran the city um in in all ways that mattered you know they ran the police force they fed people like you couldn't do anything without permission from the strike committee um that was a huge change for a short amount of time in how um this society was run in that time so yeah there are there are lots of examples and that wasn't an exhaustive list but i just wanted to add those two points yeah, those are uh, Winnipeg general strike. I'm going to be put into whatever place for Winnipeg people that um, whatever can be banished from any kind of conversation for not bringing it up. So thank you for bringing that up. Thank you for granted, you know. <laughs> that was, uh, that's what you call an alley-oop. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but what you're saying is also reminding me too that um, yeah, there's like the idea of like running society, running a city, running, taking over those functions that are currently or prior to uh, run by the state or run by the existing capitalist order. Um, and I think that it's it's not easy to find examples of the full on running of society. And I think we actually need to still get to that horizon but there are lots of examples of this kind of like regular people taking over those kind of functions. And just because right now there's the, um, the assault on Palestine by Israel, uh, a topical example on that, which I think you shared an article about this posy was just the way that um, in Italy, some workers um, were refusing to load weapons, um, some dock workers were refusing to load weapons to, to be sent to Israel. Uh, which would be used uh, for more massacre against Palestinians. So taking a totally righteous and principled stance there and also taking over that kind of decision-making that is not part of what regular people on their jobs are um, permitted in most instances to, to be able to do and actually changing the idea of... Um, how you fit into your work, how you fit, how your own actions and your labor, which is, you know, 
by the design of capitalism alienated from you, taking that back in a way, in a coordinated way uh, to make an impact and um, an impact that as a human being, if you want to talk about human nature, um, you say we cannot support this, this uh, atrocity. So there are plenty of examples of that as well. Um, whether that's um, dock workers resisting South African apartheid, again, refusing to load things um, and using that position. And, and most importantly, for the point I'm trying to make here, going beyond the bounds that this current system is expecting and imposing on you. And um, not to be naive about this point at all, because there are repercussions for doing this. Um, it's not just if you change your mindset, you can have this impact. The system of capitalism is a lot more um, heavy handed and happy to use repression and all kinds of violence to prevent people from thinking and acting in that way. But even for all of those risks, you still see people pushing through those kinds of barriers in a really inspiring way. So if you could yeah. do that, oh, why not take society? Thing. Yeah. I'm going to say one more thing on that point. Because I think that's a really good point, Teddy, about like, I think there's also conflation with state run or managed um, projects or services with the state, right? And it's like not, you know, the elected official doesn't repair our roads or get water to our houses or makes the lights turn on or take out our garbage. Like that's workers who do that. That's public service workers. And I think I was keenly like I... Um, being from Toronto, you know, the 2009 garbage strike, which lasted for 36 days, was like such is the heat of the summer. The garbage was not collected for over a month and not for, a, a, you know, I think it was for, for treatment and wages, which is also a noble cause. It wasn't um, to protest uh, state action in, in any particular way, I don't think. But um, yeah, that it was just a month of just the truly awful smell and our just parks filled up with garbage and it really showed that you know it's not the city that runs this it's the workers for the city who who run this they don't have control um of the decisions that get made but they're still you know the ones doing that work um so if you think of regular people like that it's like we have all we need because we were the ones who who do that work and that, that I think is a big part of it too. I don't think it's a big stretch to say that, you know, these people do the work, they could also make decisions um, about how that work gets done. So, you know, society would not fall apart if we didn't have someone to fill out the forms and, and check the boxes um, and tell people what to do. So, yeah. Yeah, we're already doing it. Yeah, thank you, Posey, especially for that last point. That's something I think about all the time, honest, honestly. And like, I think, you know, where there's people, there is power. We're already doing all of this, you know, like, it's not like you said, the politicians taking out the trash. We are really the ones working. And it's the system that relies on us, not the other way around um, when you get down to it. And another thing I wanted to touch on, you know, for all of the examples you gave, which were great, one thing that you mentioned, Teddy, is that we haven't really seen a truly democratically run society yet. But again, because of all the points you brought up, I don't think that's a reason to discount it being possible. And certainly, in my opinion, I think it's more possible than ever. 
with technology and through this pandemic we've seen especially you know all these zoom calls microsoft teams whatever texting calling but just the rise of technology in general having a little computer in our hand and being able to videotape things like police brutality and brutality from the state and for people across the world to be able to see that firsthand. I feel like it's just so powerful and it really makes a difference in our perspective versus reading about something from the perspective of the media. It actually allows us to share our experiences directly with each other and through that same system we could make decisions and I just think that's really awesome. <laughs> Well, and you know, a lot of it, so much of it is bringing to light how much people weren't seeing if you aren't directly experiencing something, but you know, especially with the recent attacks on and ethnic cleansing, not so recent, but with the specific events that are happening recently in Palestine, you know, being able to actually share those videos and those words from the people living there directly with each other and there's movements and protests popping up all over the world because of that. And I don't think that would happen otherwise if we weren't able to communicate with each other and see what was really going on. So in that same way, we can use those systems of communication to be able to make decisions rather than you know having to travel all the way as a group to like a city or something. It's just so much easier now and it's more achievable than ever. Yeah, totally. It's amazing how we can be humanly connected in a way that um, is built on having access to some technology and more people being able to do that. We talked about if it's possible and I think it's useful to, to go to the next step and say, well, if it's possible, what's the way to actually make it happen? I think that people don't generally just stand around and ditch their own agency if they feel like their actions can actually make an impact, if they actually see their actions making an impact. Uh, and most of the time, my, my sense of why people don't do maybe what you might think you they should do or, or what some socialists might say would be ideal for people to do. Um, the explanation for that is not because people, as Posey mentioned earlier, not because they don't care, but because people do what, what makes sense to them that they see that actually has an effect. Um, so there are some things that people do, they think it has an effect, but I think there's some serious limitations that are worth acknowledging here with the goal of trying to put that agency in a place where it can be most effective. I think we have some good things to say about that. So the first one would be electoral politics. And actually on episode three of this podcast, Posey already mentioned some of the limits of electoral politics. So if you wanna jump into that to get a uh, review of that, you can find some stuff there. I'm gonna talk about NGOs, nonprofits and social agencies, which in a word, these are extremely limited because in one way or another, they require money from the very ruling class that um, the problems that we have are the structures of society where you have a class of people dominating the working class. Um, so if you're getting your money, if you're dependent on this ruling class in order to make the change, it's gonna be limited because no one is gonna give you the tools to dismantle the system that puts them in that kind of position. Um, Specifically, 
NGOs usually get their money from government grants uh, or charity fundraisers and these kinds of things. Um, so social agencies do that. Um, so one way or another, they usually get their money from either wealthy people um, or from government grants. This has a huge chilling effect on how critical they can be of the systems that perpetuate the problems. It usually is based on an idea that governments are neutral and they're just looking for the goodwill of people. Like their function is to make society better. If you listen to episode three, you can see more details about why we don't believe that to be the case. But in a nutshell, um, governments exist in order to make uh, the system, make the economic situation um, beneficial for capitalists and they rely on taxes from people working um, for capitalists. So in a capitalist system, one way or another, the money that comes to governments comes from capitalists. If capitalists decide to just hold on to their wealth and shut down jobs, governments won't have money. So governments can't really piss off capitalists easily on their own without having this huge kind of backlash from capitalists and NGOs need money from governments. And there you go. That is the problem right there. And it's understandable why people look to doing work within these spheres to try to make change because it has all kinds of legitimacy to it. You can see these, um, whether it's brick and mortar buildings that, that do kind of work and, and you can see the impact. And we don't have a lot of credible alternatives that people can look to and say, hey, it's possible to deal with those problems in another way that actually puts power uh, in eventually building a kind of momentum to take on these structural issues. When you see social agencies as the only example of dealing with um, issues around housing or issues around um, poverty or issues around substance abuse or issues, all kinds of social issues that the system keeps reproducing. Um, when you only see social agencies as an example of doing that, and of course, social agencies get all kinds of publicity and the stamp of approval from the media and from the governments, um, it's very easy to say, well, I want to do good work. I want to make a difference in the world. Um, I want to impact my community in a positive way. That's where I'm going to put my energy. Um, but it runs into the limitations that I listed at the beginning. So at some point, if you're committed to those questions of solving those problems, you have to ask, how does this lead to the next step? How does this lead to changing things so that it doesn't have to keep being responded to in this way? So these are the limits of NGOs, nonprofits, social agencies, branches of the government that deal with these kinds of things directly. And it's not a knock to people who think that those are valuable, but you have to confront that question um, to accomplish your goal of trying to make society better. Well said, Teddy. So I'm gonna talk about what some people do who realize that, um, who think, okay, you know, government's really not the way to make change. These other things aren't really the way to make change. What can I do? I'm an individual. I can only really control myself. Um, I'm going to try to design my life and make choices that eliminate harm. And I don't wanna, I think that there are good actors in this category and bad actors in this category. And I don't want to shame people or, you know, cause I think that, you know, there's no, you know, being a vegan, choosing to buy quote unquote 
or change your, I don't want to say buy certain things, but change your consumer habits. So I would even put in trying to limit how much you consume um, in this category, but basically trying to do things or trying to not contribute to these systems how you can. So be that, you know, I don't eat factory farmed animals or I don't buy clothes that use um, slave labor, which I think is almost impossible to do. Um, I don't, you know, all these different sorts of things about your personal lifestyle, your personal choices, um, what you do. And I think this strategy, I think a lot of listeners would kind of understand for obvious reasons why this doesn't work as a, as a mass strategy. You know, there are some people who, who live this way and part of that approach to them is I'm gonna live this way to try to get others to do it. So this idea that I'm gonna be a vegan, I'm gonna try to convince all my, like if I, if I start being a vegan, I can get all my friends to be a vegan, I can get the whole world to be vegan, then that will solve um, a lot of issues. And honestly, yeah, if that happened, it would solve a lot of issues. However, that's just really not how things work unfortunately, um, be easy if it was. Um, and then also I would say that this strategy does make sense to me in some ways just, or why it's attractive to people is because really I think in your role as a consumer in society is like the one place in which you are granted agency, you're granted choice, you're treated with respect, you're treated like you're an intelligent person. You know, think of the way advertising um, sells things to us, makes us, you know, important and makes us feel good about ourselves, especially stuff that does greenwashing, pinkwashing, all different sorts of, of trying to frame certain, like you can buy something and also in buying something, you can make the world a better place. For obvious reasons that serves capital interest. It's a pretty uh, cynical um, position to take, but that is something that a lot of people fall into in, in various different forms. And, and as I said before, I don't think it's all negative, but I definitely don't think it's a winning strategy to, especially if you're talking about regular people running society, um, your, you know, consumer choices are always going to be within the capitalist system. You can't escape it. Even the choice not to consume, we can't escape that system. That's a system uh, we live under and trying to finagle a certain way of, of being an actor in that system, especially as a consumer and not as a worker is yeah, really not the best strategy, I would say. Yeah, and kind of to add on to that point, a bit of a transition. Uh, another thing that has been tried in the past and that people kind of may like to lead their life by is the idea of prefigurative politics. And in this context, trying to live our lives or make decisions as a group as if we're already in a post-capitalist phase. And something that comes to mind for me is Occupy Wall Street. Um, in the context of Occupy, I think there are a lot of great things that came out of Occupy. And for myself, that was one of the biggest things uh, that kind of started to get the wheels turning back when I was a youth. <laughs> but when we think about Occupy. The thing is, if you're trying to have a movement that is based on kind of the idea of being the change rather than fighting the system or trying to actually alter that system, simply taking on 
what we believe a post-capitalist society would look like with their, you know, their encampments. And there was a lot of great things happening in terms of mutual aid, um, you know, food getting handed out, which we've spoken about before. But if that's kind of where it ends, and if the focus on that prefigurative strategy and that relationship is the focus rather than trying to organize people to address the system and to demand changes. It's just, I mean, we saw with Occupy, it was such a big movement, but what came out of it? I think a lot came out of it, but in terms of like, you know, taxing millionaires or something like that, eliminating student debt, you know, when you have that many people, those kinds of demands could be possible. And if you focus on reaching more people, rather than focusing on the movement and the people already in the movement and kind of, again, being the change rather than focusing on reaching regular people and actually fighting the system, that itself is not a good strategy, though I think it's interesting and I think there are a lot of good things to it, but prefigurative politics on their own and especially when you base a movement around that, it's not enough to really get people moving and you're not focused on demanding change. So for myself, I just, yeah. Does that make sense? You guys want to add anything? Yeah, I just, I think that's a really good point you made, Taylor, about, you know, that it's a lot of it is um, or can be trying to separate oneself or one's group and in some ways, like avoid that class struggle aspect. And in, and in some ways, you know, if you do actually assert a prefigurative politics, that can just be because it's a threat, you know, the, the struggle comes to you, the cops come to you. But like, I'm thinking about the autonomous zone um, from the past summer. Was that in Oregon? Yeah. So maybe it was the Capitol Hill in Seattle. I don't, yeah, I don't remember. You know, there's a lot of theorizing around those sorts of actions as like, really important for giving people a taste of freedom, like a taste of what direct democracy would look like, about, about what it would be like to live in a post-capitalist society. And I'm a, you know, I'm an artist, so I'm always like attracted to, to things like that and, and talk about, you know, your your experience and, and expanding your mind and all this stuff. But at the same time, as, as you made clear, Taylor, there is like a, a harsh reality that if you're not you know, building power, fighting power, um, that those sorts of things can be an element of a movement. Um, but yeah, it can't be the kind of core goal of the movement to create um, these sorts of, of post-capitalist utopian um, pockets or, or bubbles of, of hope. I think it, it kind of has to, um, it, it serves an important role and especially in, in organizing, those sorts of things can, um, serve an important role in the way you interact with your comrades or in groups, but that can also even have a negative effect sometimes when, um, like it can stifle action sometimes when we're all kind of sitting around trying to have our perfect horizontal consensus building, where the main project becomes not what we're trying to achieve, but how we interact with each other in a kind of perfect way. If we're like working instead of trying to build power, fight power, to design our little mini society where there's no oppression and there's no 
um, hierarchies and there's no conflict, like all those sorts of things are obviously important to try to minimize in your, in your group, but it's kind of impossible to, to make that perfect while we still live um, under capitalism. So I would put that forward as well, even though I've, I've got a, a soft spot for prefigurative politics, but I've also seen where it's um, actually ended up having some negative effects on organizing as well. Yeah, definitely. And the only thing I'll say about unions is that unions are very important for giving workers um, a, uh, the, they have the potential of being a, gr a greater amount of de democratic control in the workplace and taking advantage of working collectively rather than taking on the boss individually incredibly important. There is lots and lots of gains we can thank to the work of unions uh, and people fighting collectively as unions. However, there is some limit there that is worth noting, which is that unions still require the relationship of boss and worker to exist. Unions are not trying to, their design, their function is not to have regular people run society. It's to make the relationship between the employer and the worker uh, not as horrible as it would be without that. But it, unions, there's no union that the end goal of the union is to take over the workplace and take over society and have regular people run society. What that means in practice is that um, the best unions support workers in all the ways that workers need in order to um, to not have a horrible situation, but the worst unions stifle worker activity, um, prefer to have a very uh, business approach to the unions, um, prefer to have like a very uh, treating workers as people who take services rather than um, themselves part of a democratic process. But all of these things are not a substitute for and, and not going to automatically turn into us running society ourselves. Um, and unions also, of course, are, you know, limited to their own workplace. Uh, unions sometimes are even in competition with each other because they still exist within capitalism, um, where if where work where workers have structurally very little control over the decisions bosses make, such as shutting down um, factories, shutting down workplaces, and all those uh, things that can really hurt hurt us. So um, again, unions, yes, important, necessary, um, potential to be way more democratic than many other institutions that we have access to, but limited in how far they can go and also where they exist within the capitalism. Nice, Teddy. I'm really convinced. <laughs> I think that was great. Um, yeah, that is a, a hard truth about unions in particular. Um, so the next point you know we just kind of spent a lot of time you know being negative but explaining why common uh strategies we don't necessarily endorse or don't think are the way forward um so now we're kind of going to move to well what do we think could get us there or will get us there if i'm going to be really optimistic about it so uh in our last episode we did talk at length about you know the politics of solidarity winnipeg and our general kind of theory of um, how to make those changes in our theory to practice document. You can check that out on our website or listen to the last episode. I won't get into that in a deep way 
now, but there's some other things that we want to add today to those ideas specifically in terms of uh, democracy and the idea of regular people running society, basically. So the first thing I'm going to put forward is uh, something you can do is where you can try to push to increase democratic participation in all collective spaces that you're a part of. So, you know, we're we're kind of trained to think of us, ourselves as individuals, but you are a member, whether you think you're, you are or not, in a lot of different collective spaces, be that your workplace that Teddy just talked about, and union, um, whether your school, your neighborhood, uh, a church community if you're part of it, families, if you are in an activist or organizing space. All those areas are places that can be made more democratic, especially if it's something that hasn't been thought about or addressed before. There is a lot you can do to kind of change both how those collective spaces function and also how individuals in those groups think about their role and the role of others and equality and all those sorts of things. So, and sometimes that's not easy, but <laughs> I think it's still worth trying and a lot of times it, the way that things are set up in these hierarchies are just because it's you know there it hasn't been a thoughtful organization to make it not that so i'm trying to think of maybe a particular example in families i don't know how many people come from families that you know there's like one head of the household makes all the decisions but you can bring forward uh, the idea that you should vote on things or talk about things or, or work through to make sure that everybody in the group's ideas are heard and are respected and considered and even, you know, making it so the decision making process is more communal. I know that this is something for me in particular as a student um, in school spaces that can be incredibly hard. Um, people don't think about it a lot, but schools are needlessly hierarchical. It's incredibly um, stupid in a lot of ways, especially universities. Um, if you actually try to make change in universities, it can be really hard. Uh, but I think it's worth doing, especially because universities provide um, an opportunity like workplaces do, but where you are with a lot of other people who have similar objectives and, and positions to you and other students, if you are a student. And universities are all already also places where a lot of community organizing and activism happens. Um, so I think it's good to also think about the university itself and the group within the university that you're um, fighting with, trying to make those as democratic as possible, or at least bringing those conversations up about, you know, who's making the decisions, who holds the power, even in the smaller group. Um, which, you know, a lot of this could sound, we just talked a lot about prefigurative politics and some of this could sound kind of like prefigurative politics, but I think the main idea here is that if you um, work to build democracy in these groups, it will help actually add more people to the group. You know, the more people whose voices are heard, whose um, opinions matter, the more likely I think you can get more people to join it. Nobody likes joining a group and they join and it's, oh, obviously this is the person who, you know, doesn't formally lead the group, but this is the person whose opinions matter. This is the person who makes the rules. Here are their little cronies. People have all had these experiences, I imagine. When you join a group and it's like, oh, I'm a new member and already I feel as though I'm valued here. My voice is being heard. They're taking into consideration what my skills are, what I bring to the table, all these things. That's a completely different experience um, when you join a group. So if you're in a group, try to think about bringing new people, what matters to those new people, and yeah, utilizing their skills and uh, their humanity in those spaces. Yeah, 
And really to build on that, not just your own experiences in these democratic spaces, but also have conversations with the people you care about, your friends, your family, about what their experiences are in their unions. Are they in any organizations? And if not, you know, is there something you think they would be interested in or maybe to get involved with something you're in? Just in general, encouraging people to become more involved in the community, especially democratically, of course, but just having those experiences can be a great opportunity. And even in the case where, like Posey was just mentioning, it's a space where you don't feel welcomed initially. For us, if we are able to recognize that, it can be a great experience just to see what the dynamic of an organization like that is. But of course, always pushing for that democratic control and respect, really. And if we can bring the people in our lives to also participate in those kinds of relationships and to become more involved in their workplace, you know, if somebody isn't really involved in their union, why not? Just having those conversations and really hearing what their experiences are and maybe being able to shift their perspective or give them an alternative view, you know, just giving them the opportunity to, if they aren't, feel like they aren't being heard in a certain place, try bringing them somewhere else, I feel like. And if they are having difficulties, help them out or, you know, just work together. Yeah, great point, Taylor. Um, and something else to maybe expand on on both those points is that also in your groups, um, or your communities, quote unquote, communities, what even is a community, um, there are some of these spaces where there are, you know, as I said about schools, there are actual structural entrenched hierarchies. Um, and as Teddy mentioned about unions, like it really cannot be overstated that in those positions where there is someone who actually does have institutional power, be that a boss, a manager, a landlord, um, a prof or a department head or a school administrator or something to, work collectively um, if you have something that or even if you don't have something creating something to confront um, that person with uh, it's always going to be easier it's always going to be more effective well maybe i'll even just say it's going to be very very hard or near impossible if you try to do those things alone um, and a lot of these systems also um, benefit on secrecy so uh, you know they try to keep things hidden if you have a like everyone's maybe not everyone, a lot of people, especially women, I think, if you've ever tried to report harassment um, or some sort of uh, bad action from someone who has power over you, usually those processes of confronting and also due to legal reasons are made incredibly hidden. And we've seen with the Me Too movement for all of its faults, that it's a lot better to air things out, to bring as many people in the, in the action as possible, because if it's happened to you, it's probably happened to someone else. Um, and it's always gonna be better to collectively confront those people with power than try to do it on your own. Because the structures that in theory exist, you know, be that HR or be that uh, the law even, um, that criminalize certain behaviors that are bad and harmful, those don't exist to bring you justice. They exist to, you know, actually keep, keep power in place to kind of dampen you speaking out against it. So whether that be, you know, giving you money to keep you quiet or giving you a settlement or, or whatever, 
it's, a, it's you're always going to be a lot stronger and actually have a lot more possibility for justice if you uh, try where you can to work with other people in those hierarchical structures. Yeah, that's such a good point. And I mean, working with other people collectively um, also makes it more safe for you, um, which is, I know that's, you're saying that too. Um, and also it's, it's um, why, why these kinds of values matter and why these kinds of things help get there is get to, to a, contribute towards regular people running society is that these are the kinds of things that we need to, to build ourselves up to be able to do. And I think another piece, which I'd like to add to this here is how right now we're, we're encouraged to think about things um, in the most individual and atomizing way. We compete and we try to take care of ourselves and we try to take care of our own. That's the kind of phrasing that I've heard. Um, but we need to encourage people, encourage each other to go beyond that and to see solidarity with other people's struggles, to feel solidarity and try to contribute and not to do it in a charitable way or just say we're going to do it because uh, um, we have all this to give and we can dole out something and pat ourselves on the back because we're so gracious and look at us. But instead, because um, one, we're bound in this together. We, if you really want regular people to run society, you have to support other people and help other people solve their problems and do that so that we have a culture and an attitude and a value system where, where we don't just approach things as atomized individuals. Uh, and also because we need to build that kind of unity practically, like if we don't have that kind of unity, then we're full of all these divisions that limit our potential to actually take on this task. Um, and I will connect this to something I didn't get into too deeply in the human nature part of the discussion, but um, one thing that some people have concerns with is that if you wanna act in solidarity against and challenging an oppression, you might confront people who are part of regular working class people, uh, part of the regular people we want to run society, who actually subscribe to those oppressive ideas, who reproduce them, who, who replicate them, and who don't challenge that themselves. And so there's this concern that uh, if you confront sexism, for example, you're going to have to deal with a bunch of um, men who act in sexist ways that won't be part of your struggle because now you're challenging them and you break up that kind of unity when you confront sexism and therefore they conclude that better not to bring it up and preserve the unity. And I think that that is a very, very uh, horrible uh, way to do things um, because we're not trying to tailor the the level of what regular people are capable of to the most uh, reactionary or oppressive elements. We wanna push it to the best elements that are, is better for everybody. And so my favorite way of hearing this idea is um, talking about oppression isn't divisive. It's the oppression itself that is divisive. And to confront that, you need to talk about it and you need to challenge it. So having solidarity and also not pitting solidarity versus 
unity and not, you know, shortchanging uh, the ability for people to change and learn and to challenge these oppressions and also not making the mistake that the working class doesn't have these things to work through. It most definitely does. So I think that this is an important thing uh, that is not a side project for getting towards the goal of regular people running society, but is actually uh, a core necessity. And if you don't do that, then you, you're not working towards that goal. You're working towards some small, narrow group within the working class being who you're imagining will be running and working society, but you're excluding um, a whole bunch of people who are part of regular people, are part of the working class, but are experienced those oppressions and need us to challenge those things. Uh, so we all need to step up in that way. Yeah, well said, Teddy. I think um, that's, a, that's a huge point. And I think especially a huge point now where we're seeing, especially online, I don't know how many people are talking about this in person, it's always hard to know, um, but online is the real world about, you know, identity politics or intersectionality or, you know, these certain certain forms of language or even talking about oppression is somehow elitist and, and alienates people and, and so on and so forth. And it's like something that we can provide each other, um, speaking of like running society and we're the ones who do the work is, it's education, like education is a huge thing and that people tend to treat it as, as oh, you're born into an education level um, because of your class or there's some sorts of limits on, on what you can understand. And you know, even talking about theory is elitist. And it's like, no, theory for all, education for all. Like you can have, there's no reason that access to certain forms of language or ideas um, needs to be limited. And I'm actually really, really um, skeptical of people who, who talk in that way or raise that argument because I think it's, so damaging in so many ways. And I think it's especially damaging if you look at history, you know, as, as you said, Teddy, it's the oppression that uh, divides movements, not talking about them. It's like we've seen historical workers movements and mass movements be torn apart because of the leading force of, of the movement being either um, misogynist or chauvinist or racist or um, so on and so forth, um, because you need those workers too. and it's both um, like all of this, it's both a, a moral question an ethical question and a pragmatic and strategic question. Like we don't need to separate those things. Um, we need both of those things uh, because yeah, like I don't, I don't want to win um, by tearing other people down. And also that's not even how we win. So why is that even like, I would just reject that framing outright. Um, but we're seeing it a, a lot. And I think we're seeing it a lot because also um, there is real liberal co-option that we're experiencing right now, capitalist co-option of um, anti-oppression that's divorced from material reality and, and those sorts of identity politics. And you know, it's important to push back against those things as well. But that doesn't mean then if you have someone in your group who brings up intersectionality that you call them a liberal or whatever, you know, it didn't start as a liberal idea, the liberals co-opted it. So I think um, that's a really important point, Teddy, and I can't, I can't co-sign that one enough. Especially in the context, you know, of being a socialist or even a leftist and working towards a better society, you can't do that without having these conversations. If you're trying to stifle or disregard any conversation about the 
dynamics and interactions of our identity with the classes within capitalism, you're not doing it right. <laughs> you straight up aren't. And you are just reproducing those same systems of oppression and your movement, whatever you're doing, is not going to produce the society you say you're committed to in uplifting people and eliminating those oppressions. So that's one of the most frustrating things for me, especially online. And I agree, I, I hope it's not too prevalent in person, but still, I think you have to take a step back and recognize that, yes, while certain language and identity politics can be co-opted by liberals and capitalists, that doesn't disregard the entire issue. And it shouldn't. It should make you more critical and think about what we do in response to that. Yeah, they're co-opting it because it's a popular idea. Like they wouldn't co-opt it if it was an unpopular idea that didn't, um, wasn't attractive to quote unquote regular people. Like that's something that also really frustrates me of like, obviously it, it reaches people because there are a lot of people who are swayed by the idea that those things really matter in terms of representation in a capitalist system. So I would kind of point to that too. It's like they're trying to steal the idea because it's a good idea. So we got to protect those ideas and fight back against that co-option as well as fighting back against kind of reactionary people from the left. Yeah, for myself, no, I the question of can regular people run society for me it's yes <laughs> that's my hot take after this episode well just in general i mean the thing is we acknowledge especially with the kind of society we envision we can't for certain say that it's 100 percent gonna happen but we also can't say that it's not gonna happen and that's where I choose to lean, you know, I, none of us would be here if we didn't think it was possible. And there's been so many good examples throughout this episode of regular people, either taking control of the workplace or just in their everyday lives, making those choices and decisions. And even in their jobs, doing things that make society run. We already see it so much. And I truly believe, you know, where there's people, we can come together and work towards something better, a democratic society together. And that's what I took away. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like this podcast, please share it with other people who you think might find it interesting. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, but the best thing to do is not rely on the social media industry to keep you informed, but instead to subscribe to our newsletter, which you can do by going to our website, solidaritywinnipeg.ca, and clicking on the link there. So check out our website, solidaritywinnipeg.ca, for our newsletter and so much more. And if you have any questions or want to follow up on anything you heard on these podcast episodes, please do get in touch. We'll see you next time.